0: Check out CS Instant Coffee, the makers of the world's best instant Arabica coffee. I took some with me backpacking this weekend. It was amazing. Check them out, csinstant.coffee, and use the code ADVENTURE at checkout for 20% off.
1: We were going along, and on the left of us, we saw this baby pop up. We were then on the lookout, well, where's mom? And it turned out she'd actually gone a little way away from baby. We uh, then drifted basically between her and the baby. And if there is one rule of dealing with hippos, it is do not get between a mother and a baby.
0: This is the Adventure Sports Podcast. Trying to help you find adventure every day, in any stage of life. You're going to hear from explorers, adventurers, business owners, and anyone living their life little more out of the box than usual. Hey folks, hope you're having a good week so far. Remember today is not a revisited episode. It's a new episode. We're not going to be doing the Friday episodes anymore. Just Monday, Thursday. And today we're interviewing Sarah Davis, who was the first woman to lead an expedition down the Nile River uh, in in an attempt to paddle the whole thing. Um, But you'll hear that there was some political turmoil along the way, some danger that was sort of unavoidable. So they had to just skip a little bit of it in South Sudan just because it was extremely dangerous. Um, But nonetheless, it was a crazy adventure that took a long time and was thousands and thousands of miles down the longest river in the world pretty incredible so we're gonna hear kind of the backstory and what the experience was like hope you enjoy so yeah thanks to everybody who's uh, been supporting the show lately to our to our new patrons thank you so much and if you'd like to become one it's in the show notes but anyway here is today's episode already you know established you're coming from sydney and now is that is that where you grew up is that home for you
1: no i'm actually uh, what i describe british born australian so i was born in the uk and grew up there went to university in london and lived there for a long time so that's kind of like my my hometown but then work brought me out to australia it was initially for Two years, and that was sixteen years ago.
0: <laughs> oh wow! So, so you, you consider yourself a, a local now, huh?
1: Yeah. Yes. Right. Um, and I've become, you know, I've, I've got the dual uh, nationality, which is great. And yeah, very, very much feel like like a bit of a local. I love it here.
0: Wonderful. Now, you know, with with you know the, the big adventure that you did. Um, you know, I had to start somewhere. I imagine you just don't jump right into something like that. What, what's kind of your background with uh, sports? Like, were you always kind of into it? Was that something you did as a kid?
1: Yeah, sports always been a massive part of my life, and I have mum to thank for that. She got me trying so many different sports. Um, you know, riding was probably my first. Horse riding was my first love. Did a lot of that, but then there were lessons in ice skating and squash and water skiing, windsurfing, swim squad, like there was just, and then all the school sports. So I'm really grateful for that, because that really set me up, I think, to just be, to just go and try different things and try different sports. And then I kind of got into running. So running was my main sport kind of through my 20s and 30s. But unfortunately, I found out I have got osteoarthritis in my hip from falling off horses as a kid some nutty horses uh and then I blew my meniscus I started doing shorter some distance running and then I blew my meniscus and that was kind of like the the last nail in the coffin as far as running was concerned and I was I was gutted at the time like running was such a big part of my life um, and I probably let it define me a little bit and and I kind of knew at the time it's like you know they say yeah one door shuts and another one opens and and I just had to kind of sit with it and I'd already started kayaking or what we call here like surf ski paddling through the surf life saving club it's part of the competition area and and I just started getting into that more and then doing the long distance stuff so then more of the ocean ski racing. I'm more of an endurance athlete so it suited me as opposed to the, the surf stuff which is a very short race Uh, And just loved it, you know. I I live in a in a place where I get to go out at Bondi and in Sydney Harbour and 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 train on the water. It's it's stunning, and and that really was a big part of sort of the start of what then went on to be this this journey and expedition.
0: Isn't it funny how life life does that? You know, you have one passion, and it sounds like, and we kind of only have so much time to pursue something. So you really fall in love with something, you really go after it, and then. Your body just says no more, and you're just forced. Yeah. You're forced to do something else. And thankfully, you know, you were able to find uh, water sports as a way to continue that, you know, that love for endurance. And obviously, that led to this big, big adventure of paddling yeah. the Nile. It, and and I read somewhere that you know this the, the idea for this trip. I want to hear like where the idea came from. What what, what stage of life were you in? Um, you obviously were very active, athletic. You, you weren't doing big trips like this, from my understanding, if that's correct.
1: No, like all my trips were kind of my holidays would be adventure type holidays. Right. So, whether it was trekking to Annapurna Base Camp, riding horses across the desert in Namibia, you know, it was all very active but organized kind of holidays. Or so I would, you know, go there and uh, with base camp, you know, get a guide and a porter and and off we went. Uh, but nothing, absolutely nothing like this. And I kind of got to a point, so I was working, the job I had, I loved. Uh, I was working for a bank here. So my background is I'm, a, I'm in risk management and project management within financial services, so sort of international banking. So I was working at Macquarie Bank, loved the job, loved the role, loved the people I worked with, the whole environment. It was it was great, you know, and yet, yeah, you know, I was doing all my sport and loving that and having these, these great holidays, but, and it was literally, it was one... New Year's morning, so I kind of – I get up to watch the sunrise. My party days are kind of behind me now. So I got up to watch the sunrise at Bondi, <laughs> and I've, I've done a lot of the party. We've, we've done that. Yeah. Uh, and and it was just – you know how you sort of start, you know, it's like what's this year going to hold, and then starting to ask those big kind of questions like what's my purpose, what am I going to do with my life? And and I just felt, yeah, everything's great, but I'm just not getting that, that sort of fulfillment and that sense of achievement and really getting to explore – you know, some more of the, the things that I love and my capabilities. And, and it was, which is always really easy to do. It's like, okay, this isn't quite it, but what is? And, you know, it's kind of, it's difficult to be what you can't see. And so I started sort of exploring, okay, like we need to, what what is this going to be? Uh, and I, there were a few things that kind of helped. I read a book by Danielle Laporte, which is all about finding out how you want to feel. And different aspects of your life and then what makes you feel like that so things that kind of came up for me was adventure challenge freedom feeling strong connected so that kind of helped and then what was really key is I saw a couple of people who'd done some expeditions and what really struck me was one it wasn't in the kind of natural sport so one was one woman was kayaking on a on a river and another guy was board paddling prone board paddling and the other thing was that they weren't your your kind of classic explorers, adventurers kind of thing, you know, the Bear Grylls type or those ex-military who you feel have been doing this stuff since they were kids. They were kind of like ordinary people who just went for it. And so for me just it was like, oh, my goodness, you know, maybe that's something I could do that then. And it's like, great, okay, that's what I'm going to do. I'm a, I'm a paddler. I want to do something paddling and started to have a look at, you know, something – so it's like, go large or go home. So I looked at, well, what hasn't been done? And so I looked at, you know, people paddled around Australia. Yep, you know, a man and a woman have done that or multiple. Um, then my and my geography is shocking, right? So I didn't know what the longest river in the world was. So I had to Google that. It came up with the Nile. It's like, oh, you know, I love so many of my holidays have been to Africa. I love it there. And found that, you know, no woman had done, uh a full expedition down the nile paddling and and led one you know there have been women who've done been on expeditions but you know very very different to to what i i was doing and it was just like this ultimate light bulb moment it was like oh my goodness this is it this is what i want to do
0: that's uh so there, there's not a list of things that haven't been done yet it's a matter of research and has anyone done this and if no one has it must be up for grabs
1: yeah, I mean, you also think, oh, There's probably a really good reason why, <laughs> you know, a little yeah. bit of a little bit of arrogance that sort of comes in, and the ego kicks in. You go, yeah, you know, I can do this, sure.
0: <laughs> well, put it to good work if you're going to have an ego, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> and you did, but so it's okay. So you get the idea, you know, that's one thing. But but where do you go from there? Is it just a matter of googling and getting more info? And how how did you come up, go about planning for this?
1: yeah like I so, said I mean there's because there's no the you know a wiki out there of how to organize an expedition um right. it's and you know all these expeditions are very different you know unique and they've all got their own challenges so I began by reading some books and and googling so there was a book by a chap called Hendry Coetzee a South African guy who had led an expedition down um down the Nile from from source to sea you know it was one of the first, uh, was the first to do that, uh, there'd been someone who kayaked, but this was, it was just different, um, a different sort of expedition. So I read his book, which was amazing. And that kind of helped me get a bit of an idea of sort of what was involved a little bit. And then I read a book by Levison Wood, who walked the Nile, first person to do that. And through that came up with a, a, the name of a chap called Pete Meredith, who Has led a number of expeditions, organized, risk managed, some incredible trips, um, is a whitewater kayaker, rafter. And so I reached out to him and contacted him and we had a call and that was really instrumental. Like he gave me the kind of high level, okay, you've got to look at getting your approvals. This is what I would say it's going to take. This is what the different sections are like. You know, this has got rapids in it from here on, it's flat water and just started to help me kind of pull out the hot, that's sort of the top level okay the the plan really the the project plan and and the to-do list to then sort of drill into that I could go away and drill into okay well what what are the approvals and who do I get them from and what is all the equipment and it, you know it's just took, it took a long long time to do and he also recommended doing. He said, "Look, it would have helped them in their expedition because he was with um, with Hendry on on the trip um, down the Nile, and they'd had some challenges with authorities." He said, "Look, if we'd done a recce to Egypt and Sudan, it, it, it might have helped, particularly Egypt." So, and I just thought being being a woman and doing it on my own, you know, it may make more challenges. I wasn't sure. So. Yeah. I did a trip to Sudan and Egypt and met with ministers of tourism, some other government officials, met embassy officials from the, the British and Australian embassies and met with local paddlers because I just I knew I was going to need people locally to help me. And I also really wanted to have local people with me. Um, and then, you know, it's working out what training is required, what's, you know, what are my skills gaps and how do I go about filling those? So yeah, it was pretty extensive.
0: No kidding. How long was how long was that process for you? Was it years or months?
1: Yeah, it was about a couple of years. I had this great idea that I was going to be able to do all of this, get it all organized in six months. And at the same time, I was training for this a like, massive surf ski race in Hawaii. And world championships in Hong Kong, and I was like, yeah, I can. I'm organised. You know, I can totally get all of this done and train in wow. the next six months. And I yeah. was just a tiny <laughs> bit optimistic. So it was about, you know, sort of eighteen months later that actually I kind of from officially announcing it that I kind of I was then on my on my way to to Africa, and I'd cut down. I would cut my work down to four days a week because I just just having my two days at the weekend wasn't enough to do it. So yeah.
0: So, so, yeah, you say you you know you enjoyed your career at this time, and I know there's a lot of people listening that kind of in the same boat they love their job, they're having a good time at work, and things are going well, but they do want something more mm-hmm. uh, how How did you work that out with with your work
1: um well actually, and i in this time i I then changed jobs and um, where I went to like they were they were great, they were very understanding, let me drop to the four days a week and Then at the end, I just made the call to actually quit Um, when I went on the trip. Rather than take a leave of absence, part of it was I didn't want that safety net of it just making it that bit easier to go, oh, it's got hard. It's okay. I can just go back to work. You know, if you haven't got that job to go back to, I just felt – if things get really hard, maybe that will just help me go, well, it's not like I've got a job to go back to, Sarah, you've just got to suck it up and get got, on with it. Nothing you know? to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you're gonna have to go and find a job. So maybe you can just paddle that a little bit further. Um, <laughs> and also, you know, I wasn't sure what I'd want to do at the end of it. And I just felt it would be a bit harsh to ask them to sort of keep a job opening open for me to then not potentially not go back. So and it was quite it was it was pretty nerve wracking in a way, kind of handing in my notice, going right, that's it, and I'm I'm unemployed, you know. As I went to the airport, it's like great, I'm unemployed, I'm homeless, I've got, I'm about to go on this, and I was terrified, you know, going off on this expedition. It's like, what am I doing? I must be insane.
0: <laughs> you know, that's that's a a common theme we hear. You know, I must be insane, and so you know, that's that's what you're feeling inside. What did the people around you say? like some of your, maybe friends or family, what they th- think about the trip?
1: Look, everyone was really supportive. It, it was funny, when I first spoke to Pete Meredith, he said, you know, just don't listen to people who say it can't be done or you won't be able to do it. And um, and no one did, which really surprised me. I'm like, oh, okay. And <laughs> everyone was super, super supportive. And, you know, I had fundraisers and did all sorts of things to to help get it across the line. Um, my mom at first was before we'd really had a chance to talk about it, she was not happy. It really tried to get, you know, this just sounded incredibly dangerous and and she sort of Googled and, you know, found some horror stories. Um uh, but when we sat down and I explained to her, you know, why really why I was doing this and the why behind it and my approach as well. Then she was really supportive. I mean it was stressful for her obviously. Um but what was really interesting was when I got back, I mean everyone seemed genuinely surprised that I'd made it back. And and they were like they were they were like yeah we were really worried we we, we didn't think you'd make it and some friends were yeah we did think about doing a bit of an intervention And I'm like what? <laughs> they
0: just didn't want to hurt so, your feelings.
1: No, <laughs> so they were kind of like oh okay if this is what you want to do but are you sure about this? But no one no one's kind of said anything at the time, which is good because I think you know I had enough self doubt and and I think if people had started saying things like that it would have been it would have made it that much harder.
0: Man, so, so despite the self-doubt, you really you really did feel this is something you just needed to do.
1: Yeah, and it's one of those, every time I felt, is this crazy? Is this too much? Am I too scared? You know, blah, blah, blah. Then I'd sit and think, okay, well, what? how would I feel if I say now, okay, I'm not going ahead? And it was one of those, every cell in my body said, no, nah, you've got to do this. You've got to give it a shot. Um, and, and it was just good sometimes just to go back and think about that. You know, I did this hostile environment awareness training obviously you know the the places that i was going to was um I had that that chance of being pretty pretty hostile and you i sort of got drilled for a day this great guy and and we're going through worst case constantly you know it's like stages of a kidnap what would happen and it's you're just focusing on worst case and i sort of came out at the end of that going oh my god this is this is nuts what am i doing um being told all this like you know this is what would happen in a kidnap and these are all the different types and this is what could happen here and this is what's going on in this country and again I just had to put that filter on it like, okay well do I not go ahead or do I go ahead how do I feel in both those scenarios it's like okay yeah no I am going to go ahead and I'm just going to do everything I can to de-risk this as as much as I possibly can um you know so they're doing the risk management plan and you know, getting to use like what I the skills I've used in, in in banking were completely applicable to what I was doing here. So that was also a big part of the planning.
0: So so after running everything through that you know risk management you know process whatever you do mm-hmm. with work, what what aspect of it were you legitimately concerned about the most looking forward to the trip?
1: There was there were a few like the the animals. So when I. The way I approached the risk management side was to go through and identify, you know, what are the main areas of risk? So it's the wildlife, uh, the the environment, so whether that's heat, the rapids, um, and so on. There's then illness and injury. There are potentially hostile situations, you know, from being robbed or, you know, worst case, kidnapped, um, having issues with authorities and then the final one is problems with key equipment. And then through that, just went through and identified, like, what are all the risks, you know, from the different types of illnesses and injuries, the animals that, that could threat from your hippos to your crocs, snakes, scorpions, et cetera. And then working out from that, okay, well, what's worst case um, and how likely is that, and what can I do to reduce the risk, you know, if it's as far as illnesses are concerned, something like malaria, you know, worst cases, you can die from it, but you take medication, you stop yourself getting bitten. So it's going through and working through all that that process. And it helped in a lot of ways of get a bit of perspective on, on the fears, because I think your fears are kind of like you've got reality, and then you put a whole bunch of assumptions over the top of it, which are not based on reality. And Running through and doing this process helped to get a bit of a reality check on it. And then off the back of that, the things that really worried me were the, the hippos. Uh, we were going going to be spending quite a lot of time going through hippo territory. And, you know, they're one of the most dangerous animals in, in Africa. They certainly kill, I think, more, more people. So the stats say... The crocodiles, uh, you've got some, the gnar crocs are big, like they can get up to uh, four or five metres. They are huge and aggressive. Um, Then snakes, I just have a bit of a phobia about snakes. And the rapids, like the, I, you know, despite going out and surf, I've I've had a near drowning experience. I get quite nervous in, in sort of big water and I've done this, Swiftwater rescue technician course which was fantastic at learning you know how to manage situations but what it did is made me realize how many more risks there were than I really knew about so it almost made me more nervous and more aware of like oh my goodness there's strainers and sieves and this and like, I didn't know about all that and foot entrapments um so the the big rapids I was I was really nervous about as well
0: Sounds like you were just pretty nervous about this whole thing, to be honest.
1: It was. There was. I mean, there was just so much that could go wrong, yeah, and no I, I mean, kidding. I did have yeah. to go into it going. The reality is, you know, worst case could happen, and and I could die, and I had to. You know, it's like, well, am I willing to accept that risk? And it's like, yes, I am willing to accept that risk in pursuit of of this this goal. And it was a very deliberate. You know, yes, I'm I'm aware of it. You know, obviously, didn't want that to happen, but. Yeah, there was that, and it, and it was doing something. I, I just had no experience in, and you know, I had all this new equipment and kit, and and I did feel incredibly, you know, so far out of my comfort zone. I couldn't see
0: it. Then you get on a plane and and, and fly to Africa and start. Yeah. And what what was that like? And where did it officially start?
1: Well, even flying out to Africa, because one of the problems I'd had was getting the teams together, particularly for the first section. So we needed the raft, and I'd been talking to a chap called John Dahl, who runs Nile River Explorers in Uganda, and I'd been there to do a recce um, there as well. That was before actually fully committing to the expedition. I'd... I already had a trip to Namibia and I went up to Uganda and did some whitewater kayaking. So I just got to go and have a look at this and see do I really want to do this before fully committing to it? And I came away from it going, yes, but I'm terrified. Anyway, John, who runs one of the rafting um, companies there, he'd sort of lined up and said, look, one of our guides is interested in, in joining the trip, but I still had two other spots to fill. And I'd been tried, advertised, I'd tried so many through the network and people I'd been speaking to to try and find people to do it and I couldn't find anyone. Um, part of it was because I couldn't say exactly when we were going to start and exactly how long it would, it would take. And, and I still hadn't been able to get all the approvals in place. So, but I just I knew I wasn't going to be able to move things further forward from, from here in, in Australia and I just had to give it a shot and go there. And see if I could pull it off. Um, and it's like, well, worst case, I just have a holiday there for a little while. So, so there was a big, you know, it felt like a bit of a leap of, of faith getting there. So I got there, and luckily, you know, long story short, things fell into place pretty quickly. So, um, the chat Power who he definitely confirmed he was on board, and it took him about a week to to persuade a couple of other the of the rafting guides to join us. So, uh, Cora and Peter agreed to come along and john very kindly lent us all the equipment and then it's you know it's things like working out the food so you've got you know it's gonna be four of us i had to make sure we had enough food potentially for three weeks because it wasn't clear whether we'd be able to get resupply points or how easy it would be to resupply so kind of literally getting in the spreadsheets and going okay we need this many calories and like well what food could we take that's going to be have enough calories doesn't take up much space isn't going to go off um, you know, and I knew I was terrified of not having enough because I'd end up with a, a mutiny on my hands if I right, did. Right. Uh and you know, and then the other thing is trying to find stuff that you can also actually get in, in Uganda. You know, you'd you you can not just go and buy a bunch of protein bars or protein powder, you know, try and find that. You'd find some protein powder, but I had to go to the capital to get that. You know, you don't have access to the same Yes, variety of things as as I do here. So, so it was pretty challenging just doing that and stressing about and trying to learn how to, you know, use all the gear and then how we were going to get there and trying to get um, the Rwandan authorities on on board. Um, So, yes, it was a kind of it was pretty stressful. But then after, I think I've been there about three weeks. We we set off to Rwanda, which was where the the source that we were aiming for.
0: You know, there's a lot of logistical things I I wasn't thinking about. Yeah, food is challenging because you can tell me wrong. I've been to Uganda a few times. That that seems like it might be the most uh, available for whatever you need, just maybe near Kampala um, or something around there. And it probably just gets more and more sparse the farther you go down the Nile. I don't know.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, through all the way through Rwanda, Tanzania and and Uganda, we did hit some pretty remote areas, particularly – Rwanda and, and Tanzania like there, you, there just aren't places to to stop and, and get supplies
0: what, what was that first day on the river like
1: oh look, I mean because we, we it was it was an adventure just getting there
0: I can, yeah it sounds like it I mean we've been talking about everything beforehand and it sounds like good <laughs> lord this is I couldn't do that <laughs> much less get on the river itself
1: well, we we had the, the actual getting from, from Uganda to Rwanda ended up just being an an absolute nightmare. And I'd actually gone to see a um a, what do you call a fortune teller about a few months before I went. I don't know. I got I got to a point where I just I just want to hear some good news. And I like, you go to right. these fortune tellers and they tell you good stuff, right? So I went to see the, the this woman uh, who was lovely, and she read my cards, and she kept coming up at the side of it. It's like, I'm seeing car trouble. I'm seeing car trouble. I'm seeing the, the police getting involved. And she kept saying this. and I'm like, So for, oh, for the next gosh. few months, every time I got in my car, I was so nervous. <laughs> <laughs> i like, okay, oh, my God. And she said, she said, yeah, you better be careful driving. And I'm like, oh. And, um, and then one day, and I – you know, I've, I've been lucky. I haven't had a lot of, you know, car problems or anything. And I, I smashed my wing mirror and I was like, oh, thank goodness. That's it.
0: That's all like,
1: It's all was. okay. <laughs> it's done. That's all it was. My, my wing mirror was damaged. The other cars wasn't. It's like, brilliant. Okay. Awesome. No, apparently that wasn't it. So we got the, the first, it was like people carriers that we got, you, know, you load all the gear on and we've got the raft and all the stuff and the food barrels inside and all the, all the electrical gear and the, a kayak as well. And we get going and this and the, the car starts overheating and it's overheating and overheating and overheating. So to the point that, you know, one time the guy opened up the boot and I just heard this smashing of, of glass. And I'm like, what have we got that's glass? And I suddenly realized we'd taken this really special glue, like in case we got a hole in the raft and you need to patch it, so putting on some more sort of rafting um material and then you, you basically just stick it on and I've been told how precious this glue was it's a very special glue anyway this smashes so I'm like oh my goodness this is really not good so then we have to get we swapped to another car that was great that got us to Chigali which is the capital of Rwanda we then swapped we had a night there swapped to another car and we'd load it up and so the next day we were going to drive to the source and that night, then I'd gone to at four o'clock the day before we were leaving to the source. I'd gone into the Rwandan authorities. They'd given me the, all the authorities and permits I needed. They were great, but you know, to about like lastminute.com. Um, and I woke up on the day that we were going to be setting off, and, and I have a WhatsApp message from the driver going, Oh, I've been arrested. Oh, <laughs> I'm like, really you what? You are kidding me. Luckily, I had a fixer in, in country and she sort of, she was on Huda, Huda Rangers and she never had any problems with this guy. She's like, he's always awesome. So then we all meet at the police station and, you know, the, and the police, the person who'd arrested the guy had decided the best place for the keys was with him, but he'd finished his shift. So then we're spending hours like, waiting to get the keys anyway. Eventually, we get another driver and another car. And we we set off, and we get to to the point where we we met some guides who took us into the nuengo Forest, which is where uh, yeah, the Nuengo Forest, um, which is where the source is, and it's probably it's still up for debate. Some people will say it's Uganda, some Burundi, some Rwanda. We picked what is sort of the popular choice at the moment, which is Rwanda. So we. We hiked in for 45 minutes and we finally, you know, and I'd seen the pictures of this green sign with the yellow writing on it signifying the source and, you know, kind of in my vision board, you know, I'd been imagining this for so long and finally after 45 minutes, it came come out this corner and there it was. And that was just such a huge sort of moment for me and I got kind of pretty emotional. I and mean, the actual source is really just a muddy pool. It's not that that impressive, but it was very, obviously, very significant for for me. Um And then Man, that was
0: just getting there.
1: Yeah, that was just getting there. So it's like, okay, right, I see the whole car problem thing now, and I'm so really hoping that was all behind us. And then we, because could, we couldn't put in there, it was quite a long stretch before the the river is then wide enough to actually be able to put the raft and everything in. So we were overnighting somewhere before then going to the put in, like we had to overnight because everything had sort of got delayed. And um, we're driving down this right, like, really little. Dirt road and we get a flat tire. And so then the boys change the tire and the jack doesn't work and it takes ages. And then we put the new tire on and we drive for a little bit, and that's flat as well. So then we have to turn around and go back. And we ended up having to stay somewhere else for the night. And then the next day we sort of go and overnight at this place. And then finally, 27th of October, we, we made our way to the putin and and it was funny, like on the way there I was still pretty nervous and it had been super cold. Where we were staying was pretty high up and I was just worried about what well, how cold was it gonna be. It was fine as it turned out, like we dropped down the elevation and it and it warmed up a bit. But then as soon as I saw the river, I just I was excited and I was happy. And, you know, it took us a little while to to load to inflate the raft and and load it up and then we we put it on the water and you know eleven thirty-two, 32 we, we we took our first stroke on the water and it was just the most amazing feeling I was so happy it's come like for that moment all the stresses went and suddenly it was all worth it and for me at that moment I even if if it had just been a day on the river for me it was enough like to have got to that point and and people had said to me who been involved in expeditions and like, so just getting to the start it's will be huge um and a big achievement and I really did feel that kind of sense of achievement and I was yeah super super happy just couldn't stop smiling
0: probably ended up being so much more work than you thought just to get there
1: yeah oh, massively massively and I mean it, but don't get me wrong; it probably sounds like it was already hard I'd, I'd loved it because I'd learned so much in that sort of 18 months or two years and I got to talk to so many people like people have contacted me um out of the blue you know having heard about what I was doing and wanted to share some tips or advice you know building the the website and the brand and going on all these courses you know remote first aid world in a survival krav maga self-defense training you know all of that sort of side of things and learning about the expeditions and learning about satellite phones and GPSs. You know, I know, and I, know I love doing all that stuff. So the whole journey had just been, it had been amazing. Yes, it had been stressful at times, but it had just, it had been extraordinary and, and suddenly this was the culmination of it. And there we were on the river. It was, yeah, it was exciting. And we had loads of people around us that like they have, um, I can't remember which, whether it's the first or the last Saturday of every month in Rwanda, uh, everyone has to basically sort of do community service. So I think it's from eight to eleven. It's cleaning up the, the 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 villages or the towns, or digging ditches, or helping build schools, and and everyone stops and helps out, and they have to. It's the law, um, which is pretty cool. And they were all down at the like near where we started, so basically everyone kind of stopped, and they were just watching us. And when we got going. The the kids just were all running along the river next to us and screaming and shouting and it just you know, it just added to it even more. And they, they must have run for like ten kilometres. It was insane. And when, you know, they stopped and some new kids would join and, and carry on with us. So it was you know, it was a great atmosphere as well.
0: So we want to thank our sponsor, Athletic Brewing, for promoting a healthy lifestyle through making some of the world's best non-alcoholic craft beer. They make excellent tasting NA for healthy, active, modern adults. They use certified all-organic grains. And each can of non-alcoholic beer is only between 50 and 70 calories. They have IPA, golden ale, stouts, and tons of seasonal offerings. And recently, they actually just took home the gold medal at the U.S. Open Beer Championships for their double hop IPA. If you would like to get your hands on some, you can save 15% by using the code ADVENTURE at athleticbrewing.com. Athletic Brewing, the best tasting way to keep your promises. And I also want to thank our sponsor CS Instant Coffee for making this show happen. They make 100% Arabica instant coffee. They use compostable packaging and each package makes about 20 ounces of coffee. So I'll take one of those with me on an overnight trip and it makes two pretty good sized cups of coffee. And it's an awesome feeling knowing I can just throw that in my backpack, find some hot water and I'm good to go. Save 20% by using the code ADVENTURE at csinstant.coffee. To to know that you were the first person to, if you would, you were going to complete it, the first woman to to do it, and I mean, that just must have been just overwhelming.
1: It was. I mean, at that point, the whole first thing was it was less of the priority. You know, my why behind it had always been like the fulfillment and the achievement and challenging myself, and and I was glad. You know, that got tested on on the way. Um, but yeah, to sort of be, to be doing to be doing it was it was very special.
0: So I, I've been to uh, Jinja, and oh, I, yeah. I've seen right there where Lake Victoria and the Nile it continues th- in, down the Nile. And I'm going to be honest, there's some pretty serious rapids right there, and you probably faced that you know very early on. Was that something you were worried about, or something that? Uh... You, you didn't give much thought to because to me it well, looked scary as can be. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: it did, and as I said, I, the, the rapids really did scare me. And before we um, before we'd set off to the start, um, John said, "Look, you know, go join one of our rafting trips." And so I did join one. You know, the the ones that they they do every day, yeah. uh, and the tourist trip. So I I joined there, and and I was really nervous because I'm like, if I don't enjoy this there's a lot of this trip's going to be really unpleasant anyway it was brilliant I had so much fun because you, you get to run you're sort of going over these drops and these grade five rapids and it was just awesome um but that's obviously in a very protected environment where you've got safety kayakers all around you and uh, you know it's something that they're doing every single day suddenly we're going on to this section of the river which you know particularly through Rwanda and Tanzania that very few people have done um I mean luckily Pete meredith and and hindry they'd actually they were the first people to run this particular section and so being able to talk to pete was great but you just don't know exactly where the rapids are going to be and what's around the corner and um we did we did hit some big ones and and had a very very hairy experience one day
0: so within the first you know maybe a few days or a few you know a couple weeks of the trip did did the nile have a how could you describe it to someone who's never seen it or never been there? Did it have a, a, a personality to it or like a, a consistency to it, or was it always changing up on you day to day?
1: There were just, there were sections that were because it's sort of, it's it's lots of different rivers that kind of that they call the the whole Nile. So we yeah. started the main river we started on was the Nile and a couple of little rivers that led to it. And you know this section was most of the time it was relatively narrow you know you see the the nile through like you'd have seen it in ginger it's you know a couple hundred meters wide suddenly here we're at less than 100 meters wide and it's very brown you know it's got a lot of silt or, or mud in it but it's also it's really beautiful like you've got you know, Rwanda, I think they call it the the, the land of a, a thousand hills, and it is this beautiful green lush. I loved Rwanda. It was stunning. So you've got these beautiful hills, and you're never that far. Although you feel like you're really remote, you're never that far from people. Like, it's a pretty small country um, and relatively densely populated. So you you kind of always got local villages around you, and seeing people. To begin with, it was relatively slow-moving. Uh, and then it starts, you know, sections. So it's not like full rapids all the way. You just have sections of rapids, and then it got slightly less silty, and once you get, you know, through Lake Victoria, suddenly it's clearer water, um, and, yeah, it, it did really vary, really, really varied.
0: So, So what was one of the – once you got on the river, you know, you had a – just a plethora of challenges beforehand. What was one of the biggest hurdles early on in the expedition once you, once you were out there kind of getting in the groove of, of day-to-day paddling?
1: Yes, yeah, so it was great. We got into a, a really good rhythm pretty quickly. Of basically, we would, we'd get up, pack up, um, load up the raft because everything has to be tied down. So we didn't take everything off at night. So we tie everything down. We get going maybe after an hour I'd make our our breakfast, which had a beer, which was sort of oats, Nutella, peanut butter, um, a scoop of protein powder, and just mix that up. And we'd make some some sultanas or raisins, and we'd have that, you know. And then the boys were most of the time it was the boys on the oars. You got a big set of oars, and then two of us up front paddling, and and it was great. And then we'd get off the river probably about an hour before it was due to get dark, you know, to just try and find somewhere to camp. And it was all wilderness camping, which was in just beautiful places. Um, so it was all going pretty, pretty well. And then day six, we would, the river comes up, so just past Shigali and we woke up in the morning and I could hear a hippo going upstream because they're, they're like, they graze at night and then get back in the water and go and find their like their favorite spot to, to go and, sit in the water all day and it was just a bit sooner than I'd expected to get to hippo land and you know given that it was one of my fears it was just like oh no already it's only day six so we got going that day and you know we'd all heard it we all knew that's just this is where we were so we were all on lookout we went far past the first group of hippos and it was it was fine and then there was another one and we saw we also Got into crocodile territory, like, and I didn't really know what looked like a big crocodile. But the boys assured me some of the ones that we saw that they were definitely in the category of big. Um, so there was no more hanging our feet over the edge of the right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and then we came around this corner. So the, the Nauruong it's very windy, and you so you can't see what's around the corner. And the normal approach with when you're rafting in hippo with in hippo territories you kind of want to see where they are and then you avoid them. So the, you'd smack the water with a paddle and generally they'll pop up from being underwater and you can go, oh, okay, that's where the hippos is and go around. But here, you know, they, they were just so close. So we were we were going along and on the left of us we saw this baby pop up and we were then on the lookout, well, where's mum? And she turned out she'd actually gone a little way away from baby and – We uh, then drifted basically between her and the baby. And if there is one rule of dealing with hippos, it is do not get between a mother and a baby. So she lost it, right? She came at us and Paolo was at the back of the time, He leapt to the front and he just suddenly appeared next to us. And I didn't see it because I was just desperately trying, like we were trying to paddle away from her and get to the riverbank. But she put her head underneath and tried to flip the raft. But because, you know, there's four of us on there, all the gear and everything, she couldn't. She stopped for a moment. So we were then paddling, paddling. And then she came again. And I just felt this tug. And I looked behind me. And she'd beaten into the back of the raft. So I looked behind. And there was <laughs> this bloody great hippo attached oh to the gosh. back of the raft. And it's like, oh, this, this isn't good. <laughs> <laughs> uh luckily she at that point she let go and I don't know whether it's maybe the you know there would have been a lot of air suddenly coming out and maybe that gave her a bit of a shock or she turned around and realized that she was now even further away from her baby so she sort of backed off we were able to get to the the riverbank and jump out and she stopped she went away a little bit we were then able to unload the raft and and take everything out and pull it out and and start to do the, the repair. Uh, what was interesting, you know, at the time, I think when you're in that real life or death situation, you kind of don't, you're so focused on action. You know, there isn't that real space to be afraid, but then having got off and realizing this was day one in Hippo territory, we were gonna come to, across a lot more getting back on the river that was super, super scary, and, well, I was really nervous. Um, but one of the boys was cool. He came up with a, a different idea. He said, look, because the river here is so narrow and so windy, if we see hippos again, is so what we'll do is we'll stop, and assuming we can, we'll get off the river and tow the raft past um, so that then if it does attack, we've just got something between us and we can run. Um and that that worked well. Literally the next within the next couple of hours we'd go around a corner and we we came across this big male hippo and we got out and just stopped, held the raft and he put on I don't know hippo body language, but to me it looked like he really definitely wasn't very happy. He was opening and closing his jaws and snorting and jumping up and down and throwing his butt in the air and spreading shit with his tail. And we just said, we just stood there and waited and waited until he kind of calmed down, and then we just very slowly let the let the raft past. Um, and yeah, that was something we were to repeat a few times. But there were times when we couldn't get off the river, so it was yeah. They they definitely top the list of my least favourite animals by a
0: mile. Wow. Sound like They sound like bears, like bears that we deal with here, you know, if you see a mom and a cub, you stay away, you really stay away and so unpredictable in a lot of ways and so, so huge, honestly.
1: Yeah, exactly. And aggressive. Yes.
0: And aggressive. You know, with that going on, was it, was, was that the only, I mean, I'm sure it isn't, but was that the only danger you were dealing with? Was there anything else that was, uh, that you guys were constantly on the lookout for? I
1: mean we are looking out for crocs was the other one they but they ended up being okay like there is there are sections further up in Uganda in particular where you get some very aggressive crocs that will charge um but we were just always on the lookout for for crocs for hippos. I'd said to the boys if you see a snake, I only want to know about it if I'm in danger. Otherwise, do not tell me. Um, I just don't need to see it and have (laughs) nightmares. And I did ask them afterwards. They said, did you see snakes? They're like, yeah, we saw them, but it was okay. You weren't in danger. Um, But it wasn't – we literally – so we'd had the the hippo attack on day six. Day eight, we got down to sort of the south of Rwanda, and it's where the Naiborongo turns into the Akagera river and it's right on the edge of this lake and right on the edge of the border with burundi and you know a gps doesn't have every single channel and there were multiple channels and i just wanted to check that we weren't as we tried to get onto the akagera that we weren't going to go off a wrong channel and then have to like back paddle against the current so i said look i want to ask some fishermen which way um and so some fishermen were helping and then another two and then little dugout came over but the guy at the front he looked different. Like most of these these fishermen, you know, the poorest church mice. They've got, you know, clothes with holes in and, you know, they've, they've got nothing. Whereas this guy's sitting at the front of this canoe. He had some camouflage shorts on and a kind of nicer jacket and schmick haircut. And I was just like, wow, he must be doing really well. Um, And he's, he's you know, was being really helpful. He said, look, come this way. And effectively leading us over the unmarked border because it's across a lake. So he led us further in, like, into Burundi. And then he said, look, just wait here. I'm going to call my mates and they'll show you which way to go. So I was like, oh, okay. He only went and called the Burundian army on us, right? So this oh little tinny boat with an engine, you know, engine in the back comes across the lake to us, machine gun on the front of it and three armed um, army guys. And they asked to see our passports, this, something the other and We don't have visas for Burundi because there was no plan to go into Burundi. We shouldn't have been in there. And so they said, right, we want you to come across the lake for more questioning. So it takes us like half an hour to go across this lake because there's no water movement and you're in a raft, which is not particularly what the nautical equipment of aerodynamic is. So oh it was goodness. it was tough going. We did say to them, like, could you tow us? And they're like, uh, no. It's <laughs> no, not very friendly. Um, And in the background, so I, one of the things I'd done as part of the risk management is I engaged a a company to send me intelligence reports every day. And I have someone who I was checking in with each day. So we had Charlie protocols to sort of run through how things were from sort of security, health, mental state, comms and supplies situation was um, to, and there were code words and things to make sure, you know, yes, I'm fine. I'm not under duress. And so I, as we were going across the lake, I surreptitiously on the on the GPS sent him a message. But in my sort of trying to do it really quickly, I hadn't used any of my code words, so he they all went calm silent on me because they weren't they didn't know was it me was I owned in US, what was going on. Anyway, so we get across the lake and they they question us and and I spoke to the sort of most senior person there from the army he said look it should be fine you'll be on your way soon but the police just want to ask you a few questions that's so like, okay fine they decided that they wanted to um check everything in our raft so we literally had to unpack everything and they were opening literally opening boxes and matches so that took for ages and i was getting really frustrated at this point and pissed off i'm like oh come on this is crazy and then they said, right, deflate the raft. So then we have to deflate the raft. And then they said, right, we're taking you into Burundi for further questioning. It's a two-hour drive. So we have to unload everything onto to one of these police vans. And it was like something out of... Is it Apocalypse Now, so because we got you've got the army guys there, and then there's all these local villagers, right? And of course they've never seen anything like this. This is like reality TV on steroids for them. So there would have been hundreds of them. They literally have to put a up and a rope around. There's all these people watching this spectacle going on, and it's like white women and this strange craft that they were all on. Um, so we pack up onto the onto the police van, and so it's like a, a Ute, and you've got the the uh, on the back like two seats back-to-back, back, you know, uh, benches sort of thing. You've got – we were sitting two of us on each side and then with a the policeman on each corner with, the, you know, their old AK-47s pointing at our toes and, and off we go careering through the Burundi uh, countryside to, to where they were taking us. And um, after about half an hour, we stopped and I just really wanted to get a message out to my Intel, my Intel gamma crisis um, operator so I said, and we, we did need to get changed. I said, look, we've got another hour and a half to go. It's getting dark. We're all in wet clothes. Can you let us get changed, please? Knowing that they'd they'd have to put me in a room on my own. So they said, Yep, that's fine. We were allowed to get changed. So I was sort of getting changed and trying to get messages out to my to my my guy, Dave. Um and then we go back in the in the truck and we're going along and someone as we were leaving one of the villages, someone took a photo and they stopped the car, the the police van and Reverse up, and they pulled this guy out of the out of the crowd because um, everywhere we went, there was a crowd watching us. And they didn't get the right guy, but they they thought he was the one who'd taken the photo. And they literally they threw him to the ground and kicked him, and they kicked him so hard in the ribs. I wouldn't be surprised if they broke one of them. Um, and you know they do have a little bit of a, a history of of being pretty they have knack of being quite violent at times. The the authorities there and the police. Uh, so we get back in the truck and off we go. And after yeah another hour and a half, we we got to the police station and they ask us more questions, and then they take our passports and phones. and And I had all these messages on on my phone with with Dave, so I was quickly deleting all of that history because it would just look very suspicious with all these kind of like code words and stuff. And I didn't want them to know. Um, but I still had the GPS on me, and then they said, right, we're taking you to a hotel. We're going to put you – you're going to stay there for a while. So basically being put under house arrest, and we were given like a couple of minutes to grab our gear, and I was able to get the satellite phone as well. So I snuck that in, and, and off we went to a hotel. Um, it was pretty basic, but it was lovely. It was run by these lovely nuns who were – they were quite helpful. And, and that night we were – you know, rooms, and I decided okay, I can't. i take a chance. I know there's someone armed outside watching us, but I have to put a call in just to speak to Dave and see what what deal is what he recommends from his side. So, I like, snuck out onto the balcony under dark, and I don't know. It all felt very Mission Impossible.
0: Yeah, I was going to say it sounds very Mission Impossible. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it was, and look, to be honest, he said, oh, were you scared?" I was like, "No." I was actually, I found the whole thing quite. I mean, in some ways I was getting frustrated and annoyed by it uh, but it was quite exciting and I think that's because I completely underestimated the seriousness <laughs> of the situation right. um, and David just he said look we've, there's conversations happening on this side just sit tight, go along with what they say, be compliant which we were like there was and we were just like we've done nothing wrong you know we didn't do anything deliberately wrong and, and just sort of believed in the, the you know the goodness of humanity and common sense that would prevail and, and we'd be on our way. One thing that was quite funny after we'd been interviewed by the police at the police station and came out, and the head prosecutor was there, and they'd asked us about our marital status and things like that. And this guy comes up to me and he says, I hear you're single and have no children. I said, Yes, he said, That's shameful. Oh my god. <laughs> and I was, oh my and I just wanted to punch the bloodline, not honestly. Do that, not like, oh, yes, yes, whatever, fine. Just let us get somewhere to sleep and eat. I'm, i over this. Um, so we were then. We were kept for a couple of days, and then they they released us. So we were we were taken to the border. It was all pretty tense getting there, and um, finally we sort of we got across the border and was very happy the moment I like, was taken into <clears throat> one of the rooms, like because they they wanted to hear the story and from the London side, but to the one of the officers with the Rwandan and I just saw the Rwandan flag because I didn't know who he was or, or, or even which country. And I saw the Rwandan flag and he said, like sit down. He said, it's okay, you're safe. And it was just like, like yeah, I mean, the, the tension just went. It's like, oh, thank goodness for that. And I did speak to, you know, a few um, embassy officials like from the British embassy and every one of them I spoke to, the first things they said is, did they hurt you? Did they, did they threaten you? did they, do anything as i know they were you know they were friendly to us but um yeah it was quite a little side trip
0: <laughs> no kidding my goodness so, so you know that that's i was
1: gonna say eight <laughs> right. i was gonna say this
0: all seems very uh early on in the trip i mean you you get away you start getting away from like the equator thing the equator area and and it it had to be a trip like getting into more of the the desert side of the Nile, kind of where, as you got closer to Egypt, I mean, was that a tough transition for you, or did you really notice from the river itself?
1: Well, we had, unfortunately, I had to give. So we, we we got through, we then got back on the river, made it through Tanzania. We did run a, a rapid that was still not quite sure how we survived that one. Then went across Lake Victoria, um, which sort of had its challenges, up through Uganda, and that ended up being a much more sort of cultural experience that we were we ended up you know one time we stayed in the in the chairman's house so each village uh has what they call a chairman who's kind of he doesn't have the authority of the police but is there to deal with minor issues and and you know keep things going there implement projects that the authorities want and and just sort of keep a bit of law and order and you'd always go in and check in with the with the chairman and we got to go and stay with the chairman one night. So it was this a really amazing experience and and I'd really wanted to I knew I wasn't going to be able to get all the way through South Sudan um because it it is quite a hostile situation there and there is a lot of conflict going on internally. But I wanted to get to Juba. Anyway, the my the group behind me had said look the information we're getting is that the national intelligence security service are going to detain you they're suspicious about what you're doing and the thing is that that could have been an hour's discussion um but it could have been something that had gone on for weeks and months and the consulate made it very clear to me like if anything happens in south sudan they cannot they're very limited as to what they can do to help so i just i made the call to skip south sudan because it just creates a headache for a lot of people. It potentially makes it harder for the next person coming through. So, it ended up being a sort of a jump. I then flew up to Sudan, so I kind of I didn't get that gradual transition, which I was really looking forward to. It was a going from sort of a very much equatorial Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, straight into Sudan, and and suddenly that that real desert. You know, you're in the you're in the Sahara then. So it was a, it was a bit of a jump.
0: Yeah, that's uh, yeah. I hate you had to do that, but uh, that seemed like I mean your risk management probably kicked in and said, "Yeah, this is probably a little too risky."
1: Exactly, and and it was just like, no, you got to be you got to be smart. And, and like I said, the whole you know, there was still it was still first in in various ways, but the whole thing had been about, as I said, that fulfillment and um, sense of achievement, adventure, challenge, and it was delivering on all those things, and it was all it. You know, for a long time it had been far more about, you know, slightly corny as it sounds, it's the, the journey. It was about the trip. It was about the experience more than it was about that end goal of, okay, I've crossed the finish line and this is a first. So, you know, it's I do want to go back there and um, do South Sudan at some point um, when things have settled down a little bit. Um, but yeah, then I was suddenly, and it was a very interesting time to be in Sudan because they were, there were a lot of protests happening and had been going on for about a month when I got there as the people were trying to overthrow, um, the, the government there that had been in power for the last 21, 29, nearly 30 years. So they wanted to get rid of Al-Bashir and, and they wanted a, you know, democracy and civilian rule and, and so on. So it was... It, it was a very interesting time to be there and get to speak to the people and find out, you know, why, you know, what the situation was and why, it, how it had got so bad and why they were literally risking their lives while they were they were protesting peacefully and the constitution says they're allowed to. They were getting, there were protesters getting shot. Um, and yeah, so it was it was an interesting time to be there and it also kind of added to it is like, well, if they do overthrow, there was a risk of a potential civil war or certainly um, some very difficult situations. So it meant constantly having to have a bit of a plan of how do, if I need to evacuate, you know, if they're overthrown and if things get a bit hectic, working out, well, what's what's the evacuation plan if need be?
0: So much to consider on top of doing the actual, you know, physically doing it. And that's mm. just, you know, it's just such a unique uh unique challenge there as well F- physically was, I mean, what, what was the river like farther up for you did, was it a more enjoyable pace or, or did it did it i'm sure it was obviously a lot bigger was it less rapidy less less uh maybe less danger
1: yeah from, from a real perspective suddenly now we were going from rafting to kayaking and i was so looking forward to this you know being a kayaker um yeah. I was looking forward to that physical challenge of long days kayaking and and doing that and and it was yes yeah, so it was it was very different and we had pretty much headwinds all the way through Sudan and so despite the fact you've got a flowing river you got the the assistance that you get from that was really taken away by by the wind and and it was very choppy at times so it made it very very hard going and I did an initial section from Kosti, which is south of the capital, Khartoum, up to Khartoum, which is about 230 k's, which was a really nice little warm-up. And I had um, – so the, the Sudanese Rowing and Canoe Federation were absolutely amazing. They'd, I'd met them previously when I went there. They made sure I had a paddler with me and some support. They helped with, you know, giving me letters to give to <clears throat> the – Security services and the police and the and the military spoke to them as needed and, you know, as a result of that, I got to do parts of the river that people very rarely do because I had the support. Um, so, so yes, the first kind of the first section was a good warm up. Got got through all the blisters, like my hands were painful and the body was getting into the swinging things because obviously it had been literally. This was January. I'd left. Um, Sydney in September, and, and I hadn't done any kayaking, so it was an adjustment for the for the body. And then had a break in um, in Cartoon for a little bit, and got to do some fun stuff. I got to do it. They organised for me to do this like live TV interview um and a few other bits and pieces and they're a great group of guys that i was hanging out with and then got going again and then this was going to be the long push like 1500 k's up to the border with egypt and the first 10 days just hurt the body just hurt all the time um and but i knew you know research i'd done and people who really push themselves to the extremes and like you just have to push through it and the body will adapt and and it did so you know we'd be be kayaking to the eight nine hours oh, i'll take nine hours a day um paddle for a section stop for about half an hour paddle stop half an hour and then finish for the day and and it was beautiful like it was this really amazing experience you're going through the the world's biggest hot desert and you're paddling through it on a river and you know there were sections where you've literally just got the, the desert coming all the way down to the river and i've got this wow. always had this kind of fascination for the for the desert it was beautiful absolutely beautiful um and you know these camping spots you're just on these little sandy islands or on the edge of the river there, there were some really beautiful places you just stop and we had a for this section there were we had a support boat with us um which was great so it sort of meant we didn't have to have all the supplies part of me really wanted to be self-sufficient but then the reality was it was quite nice having the having the boat there and we could just put all the supplies on the boat and just get going so um yeah it was it was I loved it I loved it but yeah it was hard
0: what a what a different experience I mean over 6,800 kilometers you're gonna see so just so many variations of I don't know you just don't understand just how varied it is until you see it yourself I'm sure so where exactly was the finish line for you?
1: Well, that was up in Egypt. So then after after Sudan, and one thing I just mentioned, like the people in Sudan were amazing. Like we could have been hosted every single night on the river. Uh, <laughs> seriously, we, we got hosted one night because I really wanted to experience it. And they we were invited into these people's homes. They gave us beds. They fed us. I was taken so – they've got sort of little um, sort of two-room blocks. So, you know, one might be for cooking and other ones for sleeping and other ones for kind of hanging out. And I went with the women and sat and talked to them and – then they gave us coffee or tea and, and biscuits the next morning. You know, the hospitality in Sudan is is next, absolutely next level. And people just couldn't do enough to help us. They all wanted to talk and, and hear what I was doing and look after us. So it was, they would, yeah, it was amazing, absolutely amazing. And then went across into Egypt. I had a, a local paddler there. So then it was self-sufficient. Um, the The police there were with us all the way, so I had an escort whether I was on the water, off the water, and then basically the Nile finishes where it meets the Mediterranean Sea. Yeah, I couldn't actually go onto the Med. Like the day I got there, of course there was headwinds, um, <laughs> and it was massive surf, so I, I wasn't able to get out there. And and I'd actually got like I hadn't been sick all trip. I'd had a a jigger, which is or what they call these these sand fleas, which it basically, bears it. it's like a parasite in your skin living underneath it, and you have to, like, dig these things out. So I had one of those in Uganda, which is pretty gross. Um, and then I hadn't been sick at all, and literally what was supposed to be the last day I woke up at, like, one thirty in the morning was super, super sick. I had some food poisoning um, and ended up having to go to hospital and get on an IV and get some liquids pumped into me. To then split the last day in two, but it was it was pretty amazing, like as I got on that last day, I was really emotional in the morning um I was just so tired and so spent, and I think you know when you can see the finish line practically, you know you know you're so close, all those sort of internal defenses that you build up and you keep yourself going, it was just. Okay, we're so nearly there, and I just felt spent—utterly physically and and emotionally, mentally spent. Um, but when I saw the river that last day, the last time I was going to get on there, I just smiled. It was beautiful. It was a beautiful sunny day, and, and the the river was literally just sparkling. So I, I I paddled, and then gradually I could start to smell like the salt, salt, um, salty air. You know, and then saw it and then yeah, finally got to a point and was like, Hey, you know, this is this is close as I'm gonna be able to get and and called it. And um yeah, it was a pretty it was a pretty special moment.
0: So overall did it fulfill that thing you felt you lacked when you when you first started planning the trip?
1: definitely and it it took a while for that to really come out you sort of you you haven't really got that or I certainly didn't have that real sort of perspective objective about it and what I'd achieved and accomplished um you know I certainly I'd loved it and I really felt this this trip I just I, I felt like I'd come alive you know and this it really did light me up um and then once I'd finished and and kind of spent some time chilling out and started to write the book you know just reliving it all getting to relive it all and the experience and thinking about it it um yeah it it totally it, it delivered and it delivered way more than I thought it was going to I didn't have a lot of expectations going into it I just because I, I couldn't you know I hadn't I hadn't experienced anything like this um so it was yeah it it, it delivered big time it was ex- it was extraordinary and I was just you know feel just so grateful to have been able to do it you know when you particularly when you see how so many people are living through those countries that I went through and um, and getting to go and do something like this, you know, in the search for fulfilment and kind of happiness. It's when people are just trying to survive from day to day. Um, it, it sort of gives it all a better perspective. And and so many people had helped me. Like Literally there would have been hundreds of people before I left during the expedition that were, you know, you know giving up their time and putting in effort to, to make my dreams come true and make them a reality. So, uh, yeah, I came away feeling extraordinarily grateful for, for being able to do it.
0: Now, what do you think one of the biggest lessons that you learned from the experience was?
1: Um, I think, you know, there was a lot, like the, the value of, of actually, you know, just keep going until you find the thing that really does make you come alive. You know, over the years, I've tried so many things work-wise, business-wise – you know, when you hit it, it's, it's worth it. And, you know, that having that big goal, you know, it had given me a purpose for such a long time. Uh, and, and it kind of makes it easier to deal with the difficulties, I think in some ways, when you know that, okay, we've, we've hit an obstacle, but we're, we're going to keep going because I'm so dedicated to this, to this goal. Um, so the value of having that kind of that big goal and that purpose and, and keeping going, I think that was one of the big takeaways. Um, you know the value of slowing down, like you kinda had to slow down and there was a lot of times I'd say, you know, that you've got, oh, this is Africa, T I A, you know, and having to learn patience. <laughs> right, right. Um and just, you know, appreciating the moment. Yeah, you know, when you've got you take away all the, the phones, the constant phones and constantly being simulated and just being in that moment. I got a lot better at at doing that and just enjoying it. You know, I was worried that I'd get really bored and I couldn't deal with the monotony, but actually it was, when I adjusted, it was, it was really, it was really nice. Um, you know, and it just, you come away with a warm, fuzzy feeling. You, know, you read the news every day and you can get very despondent and there's that feeling of hopelessness and, and suddenly you're just surrounded by kindness. And and that's what I really felt through this trip. Um, so it's like that kind of nice, warm, fuzzy feeling too. So, there was a lot, and I'm still processing some of the lessons out of it. There's, there's definitely more.
0: Yeah, the world, the world is full of good people, you know. No matter yeah. where you go, it's. But you know, you're not going to learn that if you if you don't go because, like you said, the, you're not going to hear it on the news. You're not going to hear it often on the radio. You're going to have to see for yourself if it really is bad as everyone's saying. And you always find out. Most everyone we talk to finds out it is the complete opposite
1: yeah totally
0: you got home it must have been just a trip and then you know some time goes by is there are you just kind of fulfilled now and, and resting for a while or is there anything on the horizon for you are you, are you itching for to do something else or <laughs> i know one thing when you're on an adventure you, you got a lot of time to think about the next one you know yeah exactly <laughs>
1: um and so there was it's like okay what's the because I, I mean Going into this, the the likelihood was it was going to be great, and it would just it would be the start of what would hopefully be a lot more. So, um, and it was it was. I had a bit of time in the UK, then I came back here to Australia for a month. Then I went back to Uganda for a month to write the book, or you know, start to write a big chunk of it, and it was great. It's become a second home there, Ginger. Um, And then I've come back here, and through that period, I decided you know what I would like to do is try and do a source to see descent on each continent. Uh, and so the next one I want to do because I really want to do something here in Australia. So I'm going to do the Murray River, which is Australia's longest river. Uh, hopefully, going to do that right at the tail end of this year into next year. So that's the next the next focus. So I'm I'm kind of doing some work, you know, one working to get some money because obviously it was a bit of a one way stream um, financially. So, so certainly a bit of saving. Um, finish the book. Do some do some speaking gigs um i'm also working on helping um getting some drowning prevention programs going in uganda like with some guys i met so there's there's kind of lots on the on the go but um yeah there will there will definitely be more more expeditions and and also just rebuilding the body as well it took a pounding an absolute pounding so oh, Is yeah there's a little bit of rebuilding happening
0: well if you continue this um trend of longest river on each continent you're going to be busy for a while and that, that's quite a few episodes for us so let we'll to stay in touch
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah there will be a few more whether um, it ends up being the longest it'll be one of the major ones so it's yeah there's i know i've got some ideas what the next couple will be so i'm i'm super excited yeah
0: really really excited about it oh, all that's fantastic <laughs> that is awesome well you know, I know there was probably a, a million, you know, changed plans and, and things that went wrong and right just from the little, honestly, this the tiny speck of it we get to hear on this show. So, you know, despite all that, congratulations on getting to the end of this journey and, you know, do, doing everything you could to, to make it happen and uh, pulling it off. You. I mean, despite, it <laughs> sounded like you were just totally scared to death before you left. So <laughs> yeah. all of us can relate to that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's just that also reminder of when you go and do things like this and you, you know, you face your fears, you get out of your comfort zone. It's, it's just, it's worth it. You get so much out of it. You and don't even know
0: what you were missing before. You're like, no. how could I have ever thought that this, I shouldn't have done this? And now yeah. that you have, yeah. you're on the other side exactly. of that.
1: Exactly. Oh, yeah.
0: That is so cool. Well, congratulations <laughs> once again. And, uh, Thanks yeah, let us, l- l- let us know when the book comes out. I'll plug it yeah. for sure. And, uh, Yeah, thank you for doing this.
1: Oh, pleasure. No, I've enjoyed it. Thanks so much for having me on the show.
0: you have a great day, I hope it's not too dreary out and you you get a nice, restful day inside.
1: (laughs) Thanks, Mason.
0: All right, Sarah, I'll I'll talk to you later and I'll let you know when it comes out.
1: Thanks so much.
0: All right, Okay, bye. bye. Well, first of all, thank you so much for listening to this episode. It really means the world to us that you want to spend your time with us. If you'd like to help us further, please just leave us a review on iTunes, share us on social media, tell your friends about us. You can become a patron, a supporter of the show for $5 a month at patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast. And if you know somebody that would make a good guest, reach out. We're always looking for good adventure and outdoor stories. And lastly, thank you to our sponsors whose messages follow right now athletic brewing makes the best non-alcoholic craft beer go to their website at athleticbrewing.com and use the code in our show notes to save 15 percent on your first order after all this adventure talk if you're needing some gear yourself but you need some advice before buying go to backpacktribe.com where you can ask questions to the owners who have experience with all the gear as well as all of it for sale right there on their website